the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. If you want to find us, you can find us. Uh, where can they find us? Everywhere. <laughs> Just literally everywhere. It's, it's the ubiquitous show. We are, <laughs> we are omnipresent. Yes. That's not true. That's borderline heretical. You can find us on Facebook. I'm not sure borderline. It's fully <laughs> full-on heresy. It's full-on heresy. Right this is there. how we're going to end the year. All right, great. Anyway. <laughs> Happy 2019. Here's your full-time heresy. Anyone who's been listening that was like, yeah, this is par for the course. This is about right. <laughs> Why change it now? <laughs> Why change? Why course correct at this point? Uh, you can find us on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show. 1160hope.com slash the common good or podcast, wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, it does help us out a lot if you like, subscribe, rate, review, all that stuff does somehow magically help us. And uh, if you hit that little share button, why not just give the gift of the common good? Just because Christmas friend? is over, doesn't why, matter. Why, yeah, well, we're, we're, I mean, Christmas is not over. We're Sorry. In, we're <laughs> Cultural Christmas is over. Cultural <laughs> Pastor Brian from Christmas lasts until Epiphany, January 6th. Yes. Our Anglican and Orthodox and Catholic friends will be grateful we went there, yes, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> uh, anywho, I figured we'd start the show with a little controversy. What do you think about that? Let's do it. Not like, uh, not in terms of current affairs or social media, yeah. but I just really appreciated this particular article from Elevant Magazine. It's four things. Jesus never said. And before we uh, dive into that, I'm wondering as a pastor, do you often have people ask questions about things in the Bible that aren't actually in the Bible? Yeah. I, I, do you? <laughs> yeah, it happens. It, it's just funny how things seep in. It's kind of like the internet. You and I were just joking before we started about the whole, uh, uh, on Facebook, there'll be a random quote and then like, say like by Abraham Lincoln, like this kind of the running joke. <laughs> Abraham that, Lincoln, it was like, you can't trust everything you read on the internet. <laughs> yes. Abraham Lincoln. Yes, which is funny, but it's a lot more dangerous when, we, when we're when we dealing with the words of Jesus, because right. I think uh, we start, and so articles like this I find helpful. They might be surprising to some people, like, wait, Jesus never said that, or, uh, so I think this is uh, this is challenging and interesting. Well, so it's four things, um, and I'm sure we'll have plenty of banter here. There's actually a couple of things, sort of sub-points I want to make for each of these four. The very first one is, if you had more faith, God would answer mm. your prayer. This, of course, is just now a couple of weeks after. I don't think we actually did a segment on. You're already shaking your head. You know where I'm going with I this. I do know where you're going. Where am I going with this? You're going to the uh, the story out of Bethel with That's the raising right. of the of the worship leader's daughter. That's right. From the dead. That was just really complicated. It was okay. I appreciate you saying that. It yes. was complicated. I actually asked a few friends face to face, not online, and the responses were sort of all over the map. Actually, yeah. so a lot of sensitivity to you know some heartbreaking grief. Yep. A lot of people sort of talking about, well, if if Jesus raised people from the dead, that's right. like a reasonable thing to pray for. And he, here's what it says. Um, there was a man who had a son who suffered from convulsions and was unable to speak. The father brought his son to Jesus for healing and said, if you can do anything, help. 
Jesus replied to the Father, If you can, everything is possible for one who believes. The Father then said to Jesus, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Mm. What happens next is interesting. Jesus does not say, I'm sorry, I'd love to help you out, but you need more faith before I can do anything. Not at all. Rather, he heals the boy in the midst of the father's struggle to believe. In fact, if we read through the Bible, we see God at work in the lives of people in the midst of their doubt and unbelief. We see this with Sarah in Genesis 18, the people of Israel in Exodus 14, Naaman in 2 Kings 5, and Zechariah in Luke 1, to name a few. We cannot forget the Bible is the story of God's work, renewal, faithfulness, Mm -hmm. and redemption in the midst of the unfaithfulness of humanity. He does not demand that we believe and trust so he can work. He works and invites us to believe and trust. Is this one that you run into a lot as a pastor? I I mean, it's one that I think we deep down even I struggle with, right? Like, yeah. oh, if I just had more faith, if I just, if I just, right. making us the conduit for God to work. That's I right. Think, and that that has all sorts of implications of afterwards. Right. Uh, so, yeah. Number two here, doubting is dangerous. Uh, did Jesus say stop doubting? Yes. Is there more to the story? Yes. Mm. Of all the disciples, the only one who has an enduring nickname is Thomas, a.k.a. Doubting Thomas. We've traditionally thrown him under the bus for doubting Jesus rose from the dead and condescendingly shaking our heads at his resistance to believe. But let's not forget, he is not the only one who did not believe. When the disciples first hear of Jesus' resurrection, they went uh, from the women who went to the tomb. We read in Luke 24 that they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Mm. All the disciples doubted, but Thomas was the only one with the courage to admit that he needed proof. He said, unless I see the nail marks in your hands and put my fingers where the nails were uh, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And when Jesus finally encounters Thomas, he didn't rebuke him. Rather, he gave Thomas what he needed. The beauty of this is Thomas had an encounter with Jesus none of the other disciples had. Hmm. He is the only one who touched the wounds of Jesus because he had the faith to doubt. What a phrase there. He had the faith to doubt. Nowhere does Jesus condemn doubt. Rather, he meets people right where they are in it. I actually have never heard it said quite like that. The beauty of this is Thomas had an encounter with Jesus. None of the other disciples. I never thought about that. Mm -mm. He's the only one, at least that we know of, that actually got to touch the wounds. There's something pretty profound in that. Okay, so again, if you're just joining us, four things Jesus never said. Number three, here is how you can get to heaven. This one ought to be fun. (laughs) What's remarkable about Jesus is how little he talked about what happens to us when we die. He was far more concerned with what happens to us while we live here and now. I say this because Jesus commented very little on heaven as a place somewhere out there that we can go when we die. However, Jesus talked nonstop about our life here and now. Make no mistake, Jesus proclaimed the gospel and the good news about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, but his desire was to see his kingdom come to earth. By comparison, We speak about the gospel being how we can leave earth and get to heaven and have eternal life after we die, which raises a question. Why does our gospel get us ready to die while the gospel of Jesus gets us ready to live? Wow, that's a great question. Perhaps we should listen closely to the words of Jesus and move from being consumed with where we will go when we die to being consumed with how we will live here and now. How would that change not only us, but also our world? Mm, That's that's really good. Uh, Number four, there will always be poor people among you, period. I have a T-shirt, the author writes here, that has the words end poverty on the back. Several times when I've worn the shirt, I've had people say dismissively, Jesus said the poor you will always uh, you will have with you always. True, he did say that, but that's not all that he said. According to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said the poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. Mark 14, 7. Mm. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 15, uh, where God told his people there need to be no poor among you. Uh, for in the land your God is giving you, he will richly bless you. But God seemed to know how we operate. So he said, if anyone is poor among your people in any of the towns, be open-handed, 
toward those who are uh, towards those of your people who are poor and needy. If anything, Jesus's quote about the poor is a challenge to be generous, lending freely and open handedly. Jesus certainly had a lot to say. It's no wonder he is often misquoted. So he's saying that it's not just a flippant. Oh, there's always going to be poor, but hey, there's always going to be poor. So keep helping the poor. Yeah, right. And the thing that I appreciate about this article in general is, you know, I think I've talked about this before. I've done a series maybe two or three times in the last 15 years where the premise is something like bumper sticker theology. Yeah, or something. Like that, it's yeah. it's um, phrases like God is my co-pilot, which we know isn't actually in scripture, but is a sentiment that we often kind of adopt. Yeah. But then we, you know, we went after some other phrases like um, God won't give you more than you can handle. Mm-hmm. We, we unpacked that in a 25 minute message. I think it's really easy to latch on to like platitudes and truisms. And sometimes it can be really difficult uh, especially if you're, you know, if you're not someone who's like studying or going to seminary yeah. to like, oh, that sounds Jesus-y, yeah. right? One of the questions we asked is, um, is it biblically sound or just sound biblical? Oh, that's really good like, way to put it. And that's an important distinction because yeah. some stuff is like, I remember hearing a preacher once, he said from the pulpit, ah, it's like the good book says, a penny saved is a penny earned. <laughs> I was like, nope. That's probably in a book. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that even a good book. <laughs> I think, I, again, I, I want to do this article because I think, one, important. the words of Jesus are really, really convicting. Two, it's important for us to, to take a deep dive in the context of community and to make sure that we're doing the hard work of asking difficult questions about, is that really what Jesus said? Is that really what he meant? Because I think uh, ultimately we'll all be better for it. Absolutely. All right, so coming up next, this is one out of Motherly. Um, It says, to my child-free friends, I might have to say no, but please still invite me. Mm. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and the saddest song in That's it, right the there. world. There it is. That's pretty much, that encapsulates our show. I mean, this is Modest Mouse really getting melancholy it's here. It's not Modest Mouse. <laughs> no. no. I tried, I yeah, tried. You did, I gotta give you that. It's been a year. It's been a year. <laughs> and you now remember the name Modest Mouse. That's how far we've come in 12 months. But like, what would you, what mood would you have to be in to listen to that song on, on purpose? Like, to be like, oh, I listen to that album constantly what is it who is it it's david bazan okay so oh you talked about it before Peter yeah. the lion and yeah it's uh the whole the album is pretty melancholy and my wife sometimes is like you listen to a lot of sad music <laughs> which is not wrong she's not she's you not just wrong. look at her and just shake your head yes. <laughs> <laughs> and i'd sit my trench coat i smoke a pipe please at least turn a light on while you sit in here <laughs> Don't look at me. Yeah, it's a very weird home life. She's like, you listen to a lot of sad music. You're like, do I? <laughs> She's like, yes, you do. Why are you asking this question? It's people tend to be a little surprised by that. Actually, how much uh, melancholy music I listen to because I I don't think I present like that. I Maybe I do. It, I don't think it surprises me. Really? Yeah, oh, but I but I also picture you listening to a lot of, for lack of a better way of putting it, upbeat, happy music. I well, I listen to a lot of. Well, we don't need to get into this. I listened to I I was on a run and uh, it was a pretty long run and I in total the, humble brag. In the, that was a pretty long run. Barely broke a sweat. No I was marathoning deal. the other day. Uh, it it being long helped set the context. It was not at all. If you had seen me running, this would be anything but a brag. Like, has that guy ever run in his life? I hope he's running from something now. Because it, otherwise, it looked more like a guy who had just been gifted limbs for the first time. <laughs> there he goes. There's Pastor Ian. All uh, right, before you do that story, I was with my story. No, no, just about this. I was with my son driving the other day and we passed two people running 
And they, they weren't know. together. They were like 100 or 200 yards apart. And the first guy looked perfect, like a marathoner. Right, right. <laughs> and the second guy, to the point it brought both of my son and I to laughter, he's flailing. And part of me was like, well, it's impressive that he's running. But the other part was like, maybe a treadmill, bud. Like, yeah, right. Just, like, that can't be good for the joints, like Rachel man. and Phoebe on Friends. Just, <laughs> sorry, back to yours. It's not even a story. All I was going to say was on this run, I listened to death metal, mm. gangster rap, <laughs> And a theology podcast. <laughs> like, that, that encapsulates, uh, in general, some of my That's really uh, funny. Some of my interests. It's not that funny, Brian. No, I found that funny. All right, so I'm in a laughing mood today. <laughs> we kind of both yeah. are. A little amped. All right, so uh, I mentioned earlier, to my child-free friends, I might have to say no, but please still invite me. So this is uh, an entire blog kind of dedicated to the perspective of moms. Uh, neither you or I are moms. Um, but I think... Valid point. Yeah, nor have we ever been, right. Yep. Um, but... I have a lot, a lot of respect for uh, for moms, my wife and my mom, and the work that uh, often kind of goes uncelebrated and unrecognized. And so every once in a while, for me, to read something like this is just really convicting, and I think it has a lot of good insight that you and I maybe yep. wouldn't be inclined to pick up on. So why don't you give us a little insight into this uh, this article? Yeah, it's a really honest article written by a woman who, she says, my husband and I started having babies when we were 27, and a lot of our friends were in totally different parenthetical, not thinking of children yet, stage than us. Mm. And we've missed out on some friend stuff. Invitations dwindled. Memories were made without us. So the picture here is her or her and her husband have a group of friends. They're the first ones to have babies. And they kind of felt alienated from their group of friends. And I think this highlights just even a bigger picture that as you get into different stages of life, I don't know if you felt this. See, you and I would have probably felt this in opposite ways. Right, exactly. Because I got married at the age of 22. Oh, boy. So I was the first one married of kind of our friend group. And then uh, my wife and I really, we had our first baby at 26. And so, again, it felt like this lady saying kind of at the front end of people having babies. And Uh I do remember a lot of relationships changing. None of them on purpose. There was never anyone like, well, I'm not married and you are married with a baby. But I remember specifically for my wife. Uh, a lot of relationships changing. And the point of this article is uh, this lady's going like, I know it's complicated. I know it's hard. And the chances are I'm going to say no to you a lot. uh, But could you keep inviting me? Like, I want to remain friends with you. It's it's a really kind of a plea to her friends who either aren't having kids, especially, but either aren't married. Just kind of like, I know this complicates our relationship a lot right. more, but I but I would love to remain friends with you. So why why was it so important to you? Because you're right. Because you and I, you know, we sort of took an opposite tack to this right. whole thing, and it's and it's much different. Not much different. It is different though. Being in your 30s, having your first kids, when now a lot of your friends' kids are a decade yep. or older, yep. right? Yep. Do you call children a decade old? Is that how you talk sure. about it? <laughs> but you know what I mean. So you're yep. facing very different life stage things, and sometimes it's sort of like, oh, you're in the diaper stage, or you're in the like, why was it so important to you when you were 26, 27, 28 that friends still invited you to stuff, even though the majority of the time you're like, I know I can't actually go? Yeah, it's just weird. I felt like I remember getting married young and it just feeling like people thought, well, you know, it's just going to be in your wife now. Or like they, there was just difference. This is what I meant by you and I coming out different. Not even right. with kids, but like I'm sure you felt it being not married at 30 or 31 right. and then having married friends and feeling those relationships totally. change. Uh, and so... Yeah, I just and I remember when we had kids, it it just changed because I think people expect that now you're going to be you're going to have married friends and you're going to have parent friends and this kind right. of stuff. But but a lot of your most enduring relationships, you don't want to see them change because of the change in life circumstances. That's so true. That that's I think what this lady's getting at. She's going, I I don't want to miss the memories 
Uh, I want you to be there with my kid to help, you know, raise all this kind of stuff and kind of lamenting the fact that things have changed. Well, and one of the things, too, because I got married a, a little later in life, uh, I noticed that I was getting invitations to speak at events about singleness and how the, saying that. the church often doesn't do a, a great job of speaking to singleness or creating space for single people. And so I, I kind of would often talk in the opposite direction, how what we tend to celebrate on Facebook, for example, are engagements. Weddings yep. and babies, which are all amazing mm. things. But so often, I think our single friends watching go, well, what about I, f- I finally got my master's or I mm. finally got that promotion or I finally bought my first house. Like yep. what if what if married folks who and, and let's be honest, in the Midwest in particular, especially in Christian Christendom, world. right, yep. sort of yep. like, oh, you've arrived. So single people can feel like they're either in the waiting room or their JV, they can yep. feel, I can tell you from experience, you can feel lesser than in the community of God. Totally see that. And really kind of challenging married people. Hey, be proactive about, yep. invite single people to your Thanksgiving dinner. Invite Ooh. them to the movie night, whatever, like yeah. the game night. Who was it? It was uh, somebody you knew, right? Uh, it was Jonathan Merritt out in New York. Yeah, right. Who, it was a viral tweet uh, a couple months ago because he's single, living out in New York. Uh-huh. And he said he was speaking of, who was it, Nyquist? Mm-hmm. Who they were just, they would bring him to all their family right. stuff. Not out of pity, but like, and not like big family stuff. Not like Thanksgiving, although that right. was part of it. But it was like, hey, uh, we're taking the kids out for ice cream. You want to come with us? Just and he tweeted us. about how important mm-hmm. that was. Right. And the very fact that that went viral, I think, spoke to a longing that that is looking to be met. Totally. Let me. I just want to read a little bit from this woman's article. She said, I, I'm one of the only moms in my circle of friends. I have three kids. They're all little. I've been pregnant or at home nursing a newborn or dealing with toddler bedtimes or sick kiddos who need me for five years. Trying to schedule something with me sometimes look like looks like I might be in charge of a very powerful government department, but really it's mostly because I'm in charge of dirty diapers and big feelings from tiny humans and preschool drop-offs and doctor appointments and cleaning up toys and writing essays during nap time and refilling Amazon orders and making 200 meals a day. But I don't say this for sympathy. This is the life I've chosen. This is the life I want. This is the life my husband and I have, dr- have dreamed about, and I love it. I say this for the invite. I want to be included, but I don't want a pity invite. I want you to want to invite me because I'm still me underneath all this motherhood. I'm still the girl who loves belting every word to shoop. I don't know what that is. At the top of my lungs and reminiscing on the dumb things we did in college. I still love watching movies and getting my nails done. And well, taking a break and getting out of the house once in a while. I need to and I need you. And it just goes on to sort of share this really intimate perspective of someone who's feeling like, I'm losing myself a little bit. And I just thought, man, what a, what a powerful reminder for all of us. Cause you know, you and I yes. are married with kids now and plenty of people listening are married and single. Um, and I think, uh, I think this is a good challenge, especially, you know, as we kind of gear up for the next year to make some resolutions to, to be more mindful of those. Absolutely. Things. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, I love this story so much. The headline simply reads man with autism opens own coffee shop after no one would hire him. It's a, it's a fascinating story. It's got some heartbreak, but some real, victory there towards the end. We're going to talk about this coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with the right Reverend Brian Fromm. Here he is, raising a fist in the air. Rare it is. <laughs> what a baller. <laughs> uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, wherever it is you get podcasts and uh you might be tired of hearing us say this, but any of those reviews or subscriptions or shares that really, really does help us out. And um, plus, 
No, there's no plus. Just it helps us out. Yep. I was gonna I was gonna make something up, and I <laughs> my, my You're brain end with it. Helps my us brain out. just shut down. I had no idea. Okay, so uh, WND.com shared this headline: Man with autism opens own coffee shop after no one would hire him. Begins by saying, rejection is never fun, especially when you put your heart and soul into something. No one applying for work likes to be told no thank you, and the effect of that repeated no has on a person can be devastating. When Michael Coyne, who has autism uh, and is a Special Olympics athlete, applied for jobs, he kept getting passed over. After I turned 21, I applied to multiple places. None of them would hire me. That wasn't just tough for Coyne himself. It was tough for his mother, Sheila, to see, especially because her other children had managed to find work. It's not easy for parents to watch your kid sit around the kitchen table while everyone else is enjoying life and coworkers and talking about their day. I'm going to pause there because I, mm-hmm. I can't even imagine as a parent, right? You are just longing for your kids to succeed and do well and to make friends and all the stuff that parents long for. And, and I appreciate her perspective. Absolutely. But instead of taking the defeat sitting down, Michael decided to change things himself. If he couldn't find a business that would take him on, he'd create that business himself. Michael started by taking business classes, and then he opened Red, White, and Brew Coffee House <laughs> in North Smithfield, Rhode name. Island. It's a great name. Red, White, and Brew. The Coffee House's Facebook page is full of updates and photos of the cute shop. We are a family-owned coffee shop serving up more than a cup of coffee. It's about page. Uh, oh, sorry. I read that horribly. That's what it's about page read. We employ people with developmental disabilities, encourage community engagement, and change the way the world sees those with disabilities. We are a specialty coffee house selling locally roasted coffee beans, the page continued. We also sell muffins, pastries, and calzones. We share our home with the Budding Violet, a unique gift shop filled with items from local artists. Many of those local artists have disabilities themselves, and the shop provides an outlet for their talents and an opportunity to turn a profit on their wares. The shop is more than a nice place to get a hot cup of joe and promote a local business. It has become a beacon of hope for parents who worry their children won't have the same opportunities so many others are afforded. I'd just love to get your perspective on that story as a whole and, and sort of the perseverance of this one particular man. It is so, uh, so inspiring because like, like you said, uh, being told no often, but also having, uh, some issues that probably make certain types of work difficult and certain things, uh, to, it would be easy, uh, and not even inappropriate to go, woe is me. I'm just gonna kind of shut it down or look for whatever, uh, but this 21-year-old and his parents and all these people basically going, you know what? I'm going to solve this problem. Uh, I'm going to, um, you know, take the bull by the horns and, and I'm just going to kind of go for this is uh-huh. really inspiring. Uh-huh. Uh, there's so many things to discuss in here because there's the um, why is it so hard for a 21-year-old autistic kid to, to get a job? Right. Like there's that who obviously has the wares to be able to start his own. But like there's there's a disconnect there. Uh, but then also the uh, the the ability to say, you know what, I'm gonna uh, I'm I'm gonna kind of uh, go for it and start this business, and for it to succeed, I think is is really an inspiration, not just to people with disabilities. It's a, it's right. a it's an inspiration to those who feel like uh, like there's just a lot of dead ends in their life and they don't know what to do. Well, this this is what I really want to get your reaction on. So Sheila, the mom, uh, said this at the end of the article. She said, "We've had parents come in with tears in their eyes." with the hope that their young children will eventually be accepted into the community. That to me is such a mm. profoundly powerful statement. The, the, the longing, mm. I think of every parent's heart. Yeah. Ultimately, you know, they want their kids to follow their heart and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to work on wall street or become a pastor or a lawyer or a doctor or whatever. They just want them to be accepted, to find yeah. 
their people, right? Define what's going to be their, their community. And I think this in a lot of ways, not to over spiritualize it is when the church is at its best, yeah. does so well, it gives a place of belonging, a place of home. But like, imagine being the mom of a 21 year old who kept hitting dead end after dead end after dead end said, you know, who says, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to find a solution on my own. And then to see that impact amplify in the lives and hearts of other people in their community and saying, I mean, you're, your kid's perseverance is giving my kid hope. Yeah. Like, I think that as a parent, you must feel so proud of that. But I think that there also is sort of a, it's an ever, it's an exponential growth of possibilities. Like, wow, man, this kid, no one would hire him. And he just decided to take a different route, take a different tack. I wonder if that could be same for me. You know, like Mm -hmm. think of the 12 year olds, the 15 year olds that are like watching this in the community, watching him succeed and care for people and come alongside others. I imagine it's going to have impact far, far greater than any of them will ever really agree. Agreed. And, uh, I, man, you, you said it well that we as parents, um, just long for our kids, right? Like, uh, what do you want for your kid? Right. Do you want them to be this, the valedictorian? Do you want them to make the major leagues? Well, obviously these are like, <laughs> not, I don't think any parent is like, that's actually my goal for my kids. Right. Right. Your goal for your kid is you want them to love Jesus. You want them to be well adjusted, but you want them to, to have a sense, at least I do, for my kids, I want them as they get older to have a sense of um, like they're accomplishing what what they dreamed of, and and that they're they're uh, you know, and so for these parents to look and watch their kid just struggle like this, as any parent, you know, whether your kid has autism or whatever, y- you could just project into how hard that's got to be, so, like yeah. to watch your kid struggle, and so to now see them go, but now. How what must what must the pride be in those parents to see what their kid is doing? It's got to be off the charts. It, this is what I want to ask you though, because you're you know your kids are a bit older than mine. Yep. How have you managed some of the difficulty of like watching them struggle? Because we've talked in previous shows about helicopter parents, and then what's the new Boy. term? The lawnmower parents, lawnmower the ones parents that are just like out. mowing down any obstacles so their kid can succeed. And like, how have you managed? the heartbreak of watching your kids struggle, but then also knowing like, ah, maybe, maybe this is good for them to learn or like, what advice would you give to other parents who are like watching their kids? You yeah, know? it's hard, man. It really is hard. I would say the one piece of advice I have, uh, is something my wife and I've tried to do is to try to keep the lines of communication with our kids, especially our daughter. As she gets older, right? Like, right. But to keep the lines of communication with our kids really open so that we can talk them through yeah. the disappointments, not fix them, right? not tell them, oh, don't worry, life doesn't, well, there will be no more disappointments for you. But instead, keeping those lines of communication, because also sometimes what is life-alteringly disappointing for them in the grander perspective, we as adults can go, you know what, like, it's not, this is not the end of the world. Right. Let right. me help you through this. And so I would say, some of the best moments for us as parents has been uh, not keeping our kids from some sort of disappointment, but helping them process it and helping talk them through those disappointments and then just hugging them and, you know, crying with them and being there. And I think that's the answer for parents. It's not uh, protect your kid from every disappointment because they're going to be disappointed at some sort of life. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be struggle. Uh, The goal is not to make, make sure that they don't struggle. The goal is to, help them process it and know that it's going to be okay. And that you love them, that you're still proud of them, that your affection and love for them is not based upon their performance. Right. Uh, and I think as long as they know they're unconditionally loved by their parents uh, and by God, that, that they'll, they get it. They get it. That's good, man. I, yeah. I remember, I think it was 
just like a month or two before my eldest was born, I posted something on Facebook and I said, um, these are questions I hope to ask my kids every night. How are you, how are you kind today? How did you fail today? And how are you brave today? And I remember getting a lot of pushback on the second one, on the fail. Like, I don't think it's, I don't think we should be talking about our, uh, our kids failures or about them failing. And I, I sort of doubled down. I was like, actually, I think it's really, really important. Like what you were saying in the context of unconditional love, there is safety to talk about. Yeah, I totally blew it here. I yep. totally, and to reaffirm in them, man, let's, I understand that. You know that mom and dad fail yep. too. Yep. And we're still loved and you're still in and we're still for you. And I don't, I don't know. Again, I was writing that as a non-parent, like, you know, this is based on yep. no experience. So I realized there's maybe other complications to that, but either way, I thought it was not only a heartwarming story, but something that for me was sort of like, okay, I want to live my life like that, either with my own kids or yeah. kids and families in our community to kind of have our eyes open to who we can be better caring for. All right, so coming up next, uh, this one is a little alarming. So the headline reads, Millennials are leaving religion and they're not coming back. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. Just go to HTTP <laughs> colon. I like when you do this. Slash slash. Have I done this before? Yes, you have. That is one of the benefits of having this like selective amnesia is that these jokes are like always new to me. They're always funny to you. I had a staff member, by the way. This was like such a this was such a sweet moment. He goes, hey, I want you to hear this compliment in the right way. Oh, that's like, awesome. <laughs> I was like, why would I not hear it in the right way? And he goes, no, I just appreciate that when you like a tell a joke in a sermon that it feels like you find it funny every time. And I was like, that's because I actually I actually do. <laughs> He's like, no, just your childlike joy up there. He's like, I find it refreshing because I know that you're having to give, you know, 18 sermons or whatever. And I was like, that's well, really funny. that's something about kind of forgetting it each time and then it being fresh every single time. Which has nothing to do with this story. Well, maybe it does, actually. Although, to, along those lines, you ever have kind of the same vein where people be like, I feel like you've told that story before. You're like, hmm, oh, I don't remember telling that touche. story at all. You know, I've gotten to the point. Even too, though it's about me. There, there are a couple of people who are kind of like veterans. I've done this at my last two or three churches where I'll say, before I preach it, hey, does this story sound familiar to you? And if they're like, yes, you've definitely used that one. I'm like, okay, duly noted. But if they're like, no, it doesn't ring a bell. I'll I'll tend to go with it. Yep. But my I tend to do you get more like in ruts in terms of like go to phrases that you use yes. that are like sort of a, a quick laugh. I or don't know quick, what they are, but yeah. You don't know what they are? No. If you had to guess. Uh, I don't know even off the top of my head. You've got what are yours while I think about mine. <laughs> okay, so not to share all my secrets. One of the phrases that I used to say all the time that drove me crazy about myself was off the bat. Right off the bat. <laughs> off the bat, we see this, and off the bat, off the bat, off the bat. I'm like, who's who says off the bat 40 times in 25 minutes? Oh, that's really funny. I did I notice the other day, not for laughs, but I did notice looking, listening to, looking at some old sermons, and then just really recognizing from current writing, like sermon writings that I've done, that like when I'm trying to make bring home an application point, I will always say. Uh, I will always refer to the congregation as brothers and sisters or friends. Like Ooh. I won't just get into it. I'll be like, so brothers and sisters, what this is telling. Like I and I was like, when did really? I start doing that? <laughs> really? And not just saying it, but like writing it, like brothers and sisters. Like this is la, 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 la. that's so fast. And I'm sure it comes out of like a, I want us to re- like now we're now we're talking about us and I'm relating to oh, you. But that's like interesting. 
It's a little bit of a crutch. There are there are worse ticks to have, man. For sure. Right off the bat, brothers and sisters. Right off the and bat, friends. brothers and sisters. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few others, but I don't know that I want everyone to know them. I should say it in like the Hulk Hogan voice, like, "All right, brothers." <laughs> you know, I I've been saying at least in written form, brothers a lot. Yeah. And uh, a professor friend of mine at Judson he used to like pretty regularly send me Hulk Hogan memes. <laughs> I was like, is that how you hear it when I say it? And he goes, every time. Every I was time. like, that's the opposite of how okay. I'm saying it. Okay, brothers, eat your vitamins. <laughs> and I'd always send him back like a snap it to a Slim Jim, like a Macho Man, Randy Savage. All right, yeah. we have derailed. But the Macho Man was the most well-known alumnus, alumnus, alumni, alumnus, yeah, somebody alumnus. from the school, might be the most well-known one of the high school that my kid, my daughter goes to and my kids will no go to. No kidding. Downers Grove North, the uh, home of Randy Poffo, known as Macho Man Randy I Savage. I did not know this. I learned this like a year ago, and I'm like, I love our school. Is his poster somewhere in the school? A wild story. I read a long, <laughs> I did a deep dive and read this long story. He might be the best baseball player in the, one of the best no baseball kidding. players in the history so of the athlete. school. He's a real yeah, in fact, he was a minor league baseball player that thought he had aspirations of going to the majors. Wow. And then he went into the family business of wrestling and became the macho man. It was a family bit. Bi- I didn't know His any of His dad was a wrestler. Oh, if I you didn't were, know that. If you were at all into uh, to the wrestling in the like late 80s, there was a wrestler of a lesser-known variety named Leaping Lanny Poffo. Yeah, that's not as good. That is name. the macho man's brother because his name was Randy Poffo. Oh, they were brothers. Interesting. Yes. You have a wealth of knowledge about this. It's it's wasted brain space, man. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, no judgment. I have all sorts of that going on here. Oh, as well. I right. was so into late '80s, early '90s wrestling. It was ridiculous. That I do. That does make sense. Um, all right, so we got a couple of minutes left. <laughs> sorry, yeah, that's okay. No, don't it's New sorry. Year's. It's New Year's. Not yet. Uh, all right, millennials are leaving religion and not coming back. What's going on here? Yeah, I think we've all heard this a lot, but it says millennials have earned a reputation for reshaping industries and institutions, shaking up the workplace, rethinking parenthood, transforming culture. They've also had a dramatic impact on American religious life. Four in 10 millennials now say they are religiously unaffiliated, according to the uh, the Pew Research Center. Mm. In fact, millennials, those between ages 23 and 38, are now almost as likely to say they have no religion as to identify as a Christian. We've read this before, but what's really interesting is this is off the 538 website, which is a completely non-religious, non-Christian website. And so that 538 is beginning to report on this is very uh, interesting. It says social science uh, research has long suggested that Americans' relationship with religion has a title quality. People who were raised religious find themselves drifting away as young adults only to be drawn back. Some argued that young adults just hadn't been yet pulled back into the fold, but many millennials now there is there is evidence that suggests they are not going to come back. That's yeah. the takeaway from this research because I get uh-huh. that the pendulum or the title where you know you've had this kid in youth group and he kind of wanders away from his parents' faith but then comes back. Right. And what this what they're suggesting now is that millennials the danger in this is that millennials aren't coming back and and they're yes. trending away towards staying away. And that's what becomes interesting about this study. Well, Michelle Margolis, author of From the Politics to the Pews, How Partisanship and the Political Environment Shape Religious Identity. That's a title. Yep. She said at the critical moment when people are getting married and having kids and their religious identity is becoming more stable, Republicans mostly do still return to religion. It's Democrats that aren't coming back, which I find really interesting. Mm-hmm. There also was a national survey from the American Enterprise Institute of more than 2,500 Americans. And it found that a few reasons uh, why millennials may not return to religion uh, into the religious fold. For one thing, many millennials never had strong ties to religion yeah. to begin with, which means 
They were less likely to develop habits or associations that make it easier to return to a religious community. Young adults are also increasingly likely to have a spouse who is non-religious, which may help reinforce their secular worldview. And changing views about the relationship between morality and religion also appear to have convinced many young parents that religious institutions are simply irrelevant or unnecessary for their children. So where 25, 30 years ago, the narrative was quite common that it was like, we're not really into it, but we started having kids and we thought it would be good for them to have sort of a a moral, ethical framework that appears to be happening less and less. In fact, even like the cognitive association between religious institutions and like relevant ethical constructs is dwindling a little bit. How how does that strike you as a a pastor? I think it's worrisome, but I think it's true. Even in the last couple of weeks, man, with all I don't know if you noticed on Twitter, but Christianity Today wrote some articles, and then there were some articles written back at Christianity Today. I don't know if you saw that over the Christmas holidays. It rings a bell. (laughs) But one of the things that really struck me, there were a couple um, people who would fall in this millennial age who I had in youth group who were retweeting, like, especially some of, like, the comments back about the article that, say, Mark Galley wrote or others, Mm -hmm. who felt the need to write in here, this is why I no longer associate with the evangelical church. And, like, that's a big statement, right? Like, not this is what frustrates me, not this is, these were churched kids, churched families, Christian colleges, Uh all of it, going, this is why I'm out. And that's why I think this is a bigger deal. You think so? Is is it, um, how much of that has to do with, like what they see as the public discourse versus, I don't know, like a more existential, I don't see the value in any of it in the first place. Yeah, these people felt like the public discourse, which really? maybe then there's more hope to come back because they'll be reminded at some point. Right, so I'm saying if the discourse improves, right. Like, all right. Yeah, that's I'd a good point. That a shot. That's a good point. I haven't come across, and maybe you have, I haven't come across many who are like, nope, I just flat out don't believe any of this. They seem mm. to be rejecting a lot more of the evangelical culture, wow, interesting. Uh, which maybe that's redeemable. Hopefully that's redeemable. I hope it. Everything is redeemable for Jesus, Brian. Good point. <laughs> good point. <laughs> is it a good point? Either way, this is a good article. I'd encourage you to read it because it, it has uh, some little vignettes of like real people in real time, and it's a question I hear all the time of like, ah, how do we reach millennials? How do we go after millennials? And I think um, maybe even that question itself is missing some of the point. I think it's a little broader than that, a little more um, yeah. systemic. His age I, breakdown here also makes you a millennial. Oh, I know it. Did you see that? I don't know how I feel about that. I know there's a lot of the studies break it down much more than that. but I know. We'll, we'll come back to that another time. Okay, so <laughs> coming up, uh, let's have some good news, right? 15 good news trends from the 2010s. We're going to look back over the last decade, and I think some of these trends will actually really surprise you brian speaking of unfortunate trends let's uh, let's have some positivity so mm-hmm. those 15 trends coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope you're left Hey everyone, Ian Simpkins here, and after we had this marriage conference with Thrivent and two other local churches, it kind of piqued my interest to learn more about this organization. We had such a good response with them at the conference, I was kind of interested in seeing what else they did, and so they actually provided me with this list of like 12 or 13 different topics that they offer free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously, and the thing that was crazy is that each of these topics were things that people in my church were actually asking me, things that 
I didn't really know how to talk about. And so they offered numerous free workshops for the people in our church to help them be wise with money and to live generously. And let me tell you, it was this really beautiful sort of no strings attached kind of a, we want to help you do this better. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with Thrive and being really grateful for the ways that they were coming alongside us and the local churches around us. And if you're interested at all in learning more, I cannot encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. We are still here, still doing this. <laughs> we might just spend our New Year's Eve here. Why not? It's just, uh... I can think of a lot of reasons why not. <laughs> oh, what would be top of your list? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Do you still stay up to midnight? Are you still a midnight guy on New Year's Eve? You know, it just showed up in my, uh, no, my, someone must have commented. My wife and I were so tired that I pulled up the uh, the ball dropping from like the last year. And like at 10 o'clock, I played it on my laptop. That's awesome. And then her and I were like, woo. Good night. And then went to bed. <laughs> I have been like, even before we had kids, I'm like so conditioned growing up to like you stay up till midnight. Yeah. And my wife has none of that in her. Oh, I. And she loves to go to bed early. So like she regularly will be like, it'll be New Year's Eve. It'll be like 10, 15. She's like, all right, I'm going to, let's go to bed. I'm going to bed. I'm like, what? It's New Year's Eve. And like, and I'm talking like a lot of times now it's like, you got kids. Right? No, this is before right. children. No kidding. Yes. Like, she'd like to go out. We might go out and stay out past midnight on years. But if it was just, like, home, she felt zero need to watch that ball drop. I think uh, our wives might be more similar than we realize. <laughs> we have not yet done Don't worry, a, we only a been, spouse show. Yeah, we've only done this for a year. It's, that's that. Can that be one of our goals in uh, in 2020? Yes. That would be really, but which by the way, shout out to your wife. We made the Christmas card list. Yes, you and, did. Uh, I don't know if we're outing other people that didn't get a Christmas card that were expecting one. They, I don't it's think too late. So. It's already out there. Our producer's really mad at me right now. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was like, really, like, we got it. And she, like, it's hanging up in our hallway nice right card, now. Nice card, isn't it? It's a really nice yeah. card. Thank you. You have a lovely family, Brian Fromm. <laughs> All right, we got a lot to get through with this segment. 15 good news trends from the 2010s. This is out of Gospel Coalition. This is the smartest article we've done in a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's just a lot of facts and data. So I don't know. We're going to have time to get through all 15 of these, but I want to read the beginning of it because I think it, it kind of frames it well. It says, uh, for a group whose name is rooted in good news, that's us, we evangelicals can often be overly focused on bad news. Mm-hmm. We are guilty of that. This isn't entirely our fault, of course, from mass shootings to terrorist attacks, political incompetence to racial unrest. There has been no shortage of bad news stories over the past 10 years. Death, destruction, and divisiveness tend to dominate the news cycle leading us to despair over the direction our world is headed. People right now are probably saying, amen. Mm -hmm. But while we should not ignore the bad news, neither should we overlook the good news. We serve a sovereign God who governs all things. As Lamentations 3.37 asks, who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Over the past decade, God has provided a range of blessings that have changed a negative trend to a positive one, improving our lives and the lives of our global neighbors. As we reflect on the end of the 2010s, we should give thanks to God for these 15 mm-hmm. good news trends. So we're going to do our best to get through all 15 yep. of these because I, 
exactly his point. There's so much negativity. Yes. So much devastation. So much arguing. I thought, all right, let's commit an entire segment to just celebrating some of the good things. That's cool. Take it away. 2010 is coming to an end. That in and of that itself is pretty is crazy. crazy. No kidding. Number one, as the world's population continues to rise, more children are surviving into adulthood. The journal JAMA Pediatrics found that from 1990 to 2017, the global child and adolescent deaths decreased 51.7% from 13.7 million in 1990 to 6.64. Pneumonia, I don't know if you knew this, leading cause of child mortality, I did not know that, decreased from 6,410 deaths per day in 1990 to 2,216 per day in 2017. Wow, that's wild. Number two, a decade ago, scientists and government officials feared that the H7N9 bird flu virus could ignite a human pandemic similar to the 1918 Spanish flu, which killed 50 million worldwide. I did not know that. But while there were 766 cases of the virus in early 2017, there were a mere three infections recorded in 2018 and none in 2019. Number three, Save the Children's 2019 Global Childhood Report shows the world has made remarkable progress in protecting children's uh, protecting childhoods. Uh, the, revor- the report finds that circumstances for children have improved in 173 out of 176 countries since wow. 2000. A couple examples, 4.4 million fewer child deaths per year. 49 fewer stunted children, 130 million more children in school, 94 million fewer child laborers, 11 million fewer girls forced into marriage early, 3 million fewer teen births per year, and 12,000 fewer child homicides. No kidding. The international, this is number four, the international homicide rate has dropped 20% since 1990. The steepest declines occurred in regions with less crime overall between 1990 and in 2015, North America and Western Europe experienced a 40% reduction in homicides. Asia had a 37.5% decline, and Eastern Europe and Oceania had a reduction of 20%. Number five, uh, these are 15 good news trends from the 2010s. According to the UN, HIV-related deaths in 2018 fell to around 770,000, which is 33% lower than in 2010 when 1.2 million deaths occurred. According to the report, an estimated 37.9 million people worldwide now live with HIV, but a record number, 23.3 million, have access to antiretroviral therapy, which can control the infection. Wow. All right, number six, stroke rates for U.S. adults older than 65 have decreased by one-third each decade for the last 30 years, and new diabetes cases have declined by 35% since 2009, the longest decline since the government started tracking the statistic. Number seven, five years ago, about half of India's 1.3 billion population did not have access to a toilet. Wow. The result was a sanitation and public health nightmare as people had to relieve themselves in fields, bushes, forests, and bodies of water. After efforts by the government to provide more facilities, in 2019, nearly 93% of households were found to have access to toilets, while 96.5% of the people who had access to toilets Use them. Okay. That's unbelievable. Wow. Uh, number eight, deaths from terrorism half in the last four years. Deaths in Europe fell by 70% with Western Europe recording its lowest number of incidents since 2012. Number nine, according to Child Trends, by 2016, the rate of victimization from violent crimes, which include rape, robbery, and aggravated and simple assaults, for adolescents ages 12 to 20 had fallen to a little more than one-sixth of the rate in the mid-90s. Wow. From a high of 181 victimizations per 1,000 population 
down to 28 victimizations per 1,000. No kidding. There were major declines in most types of violent crime during this period, including simple assault, aggravated assault, and robbery. Wow. All right, number 10, the number of people killed in wars is the lowest in seven years. For the fourth year running, the number of battle-related deaths has fallen, and compared with the most recent peak in 2014, the number of fatalities has fallen by 43%. Uh, number 11, the abortion rate in the United States dropped in 2017 to 13.5, the lowest rate recorded since abortion was legalized in 1973. No abortion rates fell in most states and in all four regions in the country. Wow. Number 12, again, if you're just joining us, these are 15 good news trends from the 2010s. The teen birth rate in the United States is also at a record low, dropping to less than 18 births per thousand girls and women ages 15 to 19 for the first time since the government began regularly collecting data on this group. Number 13, the number of people held in American prisons continues to decline from that population's peak in uh, in 2009, uh, according to the Justice Department data. A report from the Bureau of Justice Statistics says the number of prisoners under state or federal jurisdiction by the end of 2017 had dropped to 1.48 million people, down from 1.61 million in 2009. Fascinating. Number 14, a century ago, child mortality rates exceeded 10%, even in high-income countries such as the United States. But thanks to modern medicine and better public safety in general, this number has been reduced to almost zero in wealthy countries. And the last one, uh, in 1990, the UN's Millennium Development Goals included a target of having poverty. Uh, that's having, uh, cutting in half. Yeah, right. Poverty by 2015. <laughs> Uh, that goal was achieved five years early. In 1990, more than one-third of the world's population lived in abject poverty. By 2010, the number had been cut in half to 18%. According to recent estimates, in 2015, the number had dropped to 10%. Since 1990, nearly 1.1 billion fewer people are living in extreme poverty. This this whole list is fascinating because if you watch our new, the news, most times you would think the world is falling apart. Right. And there are certainly issues, certainly For things sure. to talk about. Absolutely. But these trends are, you and I at each one kind of went, wow, because uh-huh. I think we were both surprised by almost every one of these. Well, and that's kind of why I wanted to do it, because exactly what you said, that's not to diminish or disregard yep. any of the actual real heartache and struggle and difficulty in the world. But, and you and I are probably a part of the problem in some degree. It is easy to like hop on. Here's what's broken. Yes. Here's what's not right. Here's what's, you know, needing repair. But I think this kind of story, the very least, and that I know that was a lot of statistics, especially to to it's listen good. to it. Yeah. So I'd go back to our Facebook page, uh, Common Good Radio Show, and actually read the article because it is, as we kind of near the end of the year, I think a really helpful perspective on, wow, there has been a lot of good in the world that yeah. I think is also worth celebrating. All right, well, coming up next. Uh, a little bit of a right turn. This is uh, a week in the life of an ordinary pastor. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins. Along with, I was going to say alongside. Is that how you say it? I do tend to say alongside. Alongside, along with. What would be a we third option? We were speaking option? of crutches before. <laughs> is that one of them? I think so. Do you intro your sermon the same way every time? No. You don't? No, 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 no. What's a typical, the band, maybe there's like an announcement or two. Brian Fromm takes the stage. What do you say out of your Oh, know. it's really funny you bring this up because Scott, our other pastor, was telling me that we need to work on transitions because I tend to just get up and jump in. So, In, into the message? Yes. No, like, hey, how are you? Oh, I will do that, but okay. never like, hey, never like reflecting back on the, like, the, our 
what we just sang oh. or spending time praying. It's usually just like, all right, grab your Bibles. Let's jump right in. If you remember, we're in the book of blah, blah, blah. And here we go. That's so. very Matt Chandler of you. Oh, good point. I think that's a lot of how he is. Hey, everyone, Bible under your seat. Let's do it. He totally does. Doesn't that. he? Yes. Yes. And then he just keeps going. Are you tracking with me? Are you tracking? Are you tracking? He does, well, I can't. You can't see on the radio. He does this like swimming fish motion with his arm that I love. It's always <laughs> true. He's got such a big wingspan he too. He's does. like an albatross. Yeah, just, if, I, if you or I tried it, it would look really like. <laughs> I got my little T Rex arms. It's like, is he having a stroke? What's happening? Oh, it's ridiculous. We need to have Matt Chandler on sometime. That's Let's a fun one. do it. All right, before I get into this article, the, uh, a week in the life of an ordinary pastor, you have some words for us. I do. I want to talk to you about the March for Life Chicago. So you could join thousands at the largest pro-life event in the Midwest on Saturday, January 11th at the March for Life Chicago. Visit marchforlifechicago.org for tickets and details about new and expanded events all day, including a convention, a youth rally, the March for Life rally at Daly Plaza uh, with abortion survivor Claire Colwell, Chicago Bears President Pat McCaskey and Cardinal Cupic. Uh, followed by a dinner banquet and swing dancing. Ooh, swing dancing Whoa. into the night. Uh, the voiceless need a voice. March for babies. March for women. March for life. You can visit marchforlifechicago.org today. All right. So uh, that was great, by the way. Thank Brian. you very much. Really well. I know uh, you're a words word of affirmation. Word of guy. affirmation. You are affirming <laughs> that read. I was telling you off air. Somebody came up to me. That uh, was a week or two ago after the service, and they were they just really loved the show, which is which is always super encouraging. Yep. But they were like, please tell Brian, too. And I said, <laughs> oh, he's a words of affirmation guy. I'll definitely tell him. And the guy goes, I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, he does listen to the show. <laughs> I know. It's really, really funny. All right. So here's, here's an article. It's a different. This is a little bit of an off-speed pitch for us. It's called A Week in the Life of an Ordinary Pastor. So you and I didn't write this. I'm just nope. going to read it. Um, because it is a part of the show that we bring up a lot, and um, I, I'd be curious to know your reactions to this. It's sort of written poetically, and I'll just, uh, I'll just get your read on it. So it says, uh, on Tuesday afternoon, the pastor is pulling into the church parking lot after a long lunch meeting with a member when his phone rings. Hello, pastor. As you know, my wife is still recovering from surgery. It's been a really hard couple of weeks, and I just wanted you to know that nobody has cared for us. Well, a little, but not like we expected. I appreciate you coming to the hospital to pray with us, but we won't be coming back to your church. The pastor offers an apology and hangs up the phone, discouraged. An hour later, he makes a call to check in on a sick member. Pastor, thank you so much for that call. We've been so overwhelmed and blessed by the way the church has loved and cared for us during this crisis. Thank you for everything. After praying with them, he hangs up the phone, grateful. As he prepares to leave his office for the day, a deacon drops by unannounced. Hey, pastor, do you have a minute? <laughs> Listen, some folks are really struggling with what happened in the last business meeting. They don't feel... They had much of a voice in the decision, and they're pretty upset. Just thought you should know. The pastor leans back in his chair, fearful. Mm. That evening at a local restaurant, another deacon stops by his table on the way out. Good to see you, pastor. Listen, I want you to know that we are thankful for your leadership. We support you and the other leaders. Let me know if there's anything I can help with. He finishes his meal, encouraged. Wednesday, the next morning, he takes a break from preparing for Wednesday Bible study and checks his email. Good morning, pastor. I was hoping to meet up, but everyone's busy. Anyway, I wanted to let you know that we were going to start visiting other churches, just looking for something different. He hangs his head and lets out a deep sigh. Later in the day, he opens a card that came in the mail. Pastor, thank you for preaching the word each week. My family has grown so much in the Lord, and we appreciate your hard work to carefully teach us the Bible. He tucks the card in his Bible so that he can read it often. That evening, his phone rings at 10.20 p.m., which is unusual. Hey, Pastor, Mom isn't doing well. The hospice nurse says it won't be too much longer. Okay, I'll be right over. He gets out of bed and gets dressed. Thursday. 
After returning home in the middle of the night, a notification on his phone wakes him up at 8.45 a.m. It was a long night, but he grabs his phone and plays his voicemail. Pastor, I came by to see you at the office again. Where are you? I need to talk to someone and no one is ever around. Call me. He hangs up the phone, exhausted. Saturday. Early Saturday morning, he sits at his kitchen table working on the sermon he tried all week to finish by Thursday. He types out the next sentence, feeling disappointed in himself, yet another Saturday where he still has sermon work to do. Saturday evening, around 10.30 p.m., after a full and fun day with his family, he kisses his wife goodnight and makes his way back to the kitchen table to finish up his sermon. Finally done hours later, he quietly crawls into bed and falls asleep praying. Hmm. Sunday. The alarm goes off early on Sunday morning. The pastor prepares for the day. He gathers with the saints to worship Jesus, enjoy the fellowship of believers, and preach about the grace and comfort of Christ. He walks among the flocks, shaking hands, listening to prayer requests, and welcoming new faces. After lunch, he grabs a quick nap in his recliner before it's time to head back for evening activities. His heart is thankful for the call to be an under-shepherd of Christ's flock. Every pastor can relate, at least on some level, to such a week. Some weeks, being a pastor feels like riding an emotional roller coaster. Like the Apostle Paul We have days when our concern for the church is a daily pressure. But also, like Paul, we have moments when we're on our knees praying with others, weeping together on account of the gospel's blessings. This is what it's like when we shepherd the flock of God among us, 1 Peter 5.2. The mature pastor knows three things. First, Jesus is the chief shepherd who has called him to be an under-shepherd of the flock. Second, shepherds look and smell like sheep because that's what they are. And third, all sheep have a way of making the ministry both awesome and awful. We must remember that what the sheep really need is a heart so full of love for Jesus that it spills out in ways that look and sound like Jesus. That's why you are their pastor, to preach the good news of Jesus to them, to be among them, to teach them to trust Jesus, and to help them get to the end of their race with joy in Jesus. Each Sunday, you walk, you know, you walk them down the aisle to Jesus. You remind them of his grace. You seek to stir up hope, and you encourage them that this life is a vapor that soon they will joyfully bow before their king in glory. On that day, he will wipe away every tear. The emotional roller coaster will come to an eternal end. In the Pilgrim's Progress, there is a picture of a pastor displayed in a room of the interpreter's house. He has his eyes lifted to the heaven, the best of books in his hands, the law of truth written upon his lips, the world behind his back, ready to plead with men, and a crown of gold did, uh, a crown of gold did hang over his head. Christian asks for an explanation. The, the interpreter replies, The man whose picture this is is one of a thousand. He can beget children, travail and birth with children, and nurse them uh, himself when they are born. He is sure in the world that uh, world that comes next to have glory for his reward. This is you, Pastor, one in a thousand with glory to come. You have been called to a noble task. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Run well and serve in the strength of the Lord so that on the day of accounting you can joyfully present the bride to Jesus as you hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Mm. How does that hit you, Brad? It, it's there's so much in there where you're like, okay, because sometimes when there's articles about oh here's a pastor's life, it can make it seem like it's like such a burden or yeah that, right. And this I felt like was really fair. Like what I really appreciate about this article is no week is normal, uh-huh. and right. that that a lot of times you have to internalize your feelings. Right? Like I, what I like in that article is where it was like he hung up the phone, frustrated. Yeah, he. Read that, you know, he did this excitedly or exhausted. Right, like right. I, there's so many competing emotions uh-huh. that I feel in a, let it, let alone a year, like in a given week uh-huh. that is, uh, because it's in, you know, to be crass about it, we're as pastors, we're in the people business. 
uh, and people can be exhausting, and we can be exhausting. <laughs> yeah, like, our, own, not, our own thoughts yeah. can be exhausting, for and sure. And so, uh, yeah, I resonated with a lot of this. That The phrase, the home run phrase, that it is both a job that is awesome and awful, <laughs> I think that pendulum gets swung back and forth frequently. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the awful part, too, I, I initially wanted to kind of, like, stiff arm. But like, sometimes it's awful, not because someone's, like, nagging you, but yeah. because you're holding the hand of someone as they breathe their last. Yeah. You're weeping with someone whose spouse just left them or whose kid just died. You know what I mean? Like some of the gut-wrenching parts of pastoral ministry. And again, I hope this doesn't sound in any way like self-serving. You and I are both pastors, but I I do think sometimes people will wonder, like, what's it really like in your head? And I often say, like, it's a scary place. (laughs) Get out of there. (laughs) But it's filled with insecurities and hopes and dreams and fears and frustrations just like anybody. But uh Either way, it's, again, not something that you and I wrote, but it's something that I thought, okay, this actually is a interesting way to sort of give at least a, a glimpse, a peek into the life and mind and struggle. And uh, if you're thinking about it, if you have a pastor that you love or that you know, yeah. send them a note. Yep. Send them an encouraging word. Give them like a long hug next time you see them or some, some kind of, because it, you know, this is true for everybody, but sometimes pastors, especially in this season, yeah. you know, it can just start to feel like everything is a, a little topsy-turvy and we could all use a little love. True statement. All right. Well, coming up next, um, every once in a while, I'll just come across a tweet or something. So it's not a long form anything, but I, I just find it interesting. And it's kind of about, uh, well, it just says this. My husband has three rules of engagement when we go to church. So I'm going to talk about those three rules, see if you agree or disagree. Coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on a train, on a plane, <laughs> in a box with a fox. Would you, could you listen to The Common Good? I should have thought that out better. Anyway, <laughs> you can find us on uh, Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. There you can find our original video from a year ago where Brian and I mm. barely knew each other at all. Much younger. I'm much younger. <laughs> we dress We've nicer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My haircut has never been so nice ever, <laughs> not since then at all. And uh, you can also get us on podcast form. Some of you are like, wait, this isn't just a podcast? No, we're a radio show. I was sharing also with you. Podcasting. I was sharing with you that somebody very nicely said uh, to somebody else, I know I, I really enjoy their podcast. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. Shoot, yeah. Any but if, medium you want. Right, exactly. But if you like, subscribe, review, all of that really does actually help us out. We're still a new show. And if you hit that share button, share it with a friend or a neighbor, coworker, or a number at random. I'm sure they could appreciate it. That would <laughs> well, be listen. fun. Wouldn't that be interesting? Like, hey, you don't know me, but these guys are funny. Yeah, <laughs> listen to this. I mean, <laughs> might as well. Okay, that so would every, be funny. Every once in a while, I'll come across a, uh, a post or a tweet or something that I, I just find to be interesting. And uh, so I don't really know where we'll go with this, but um, I just liked it. So it said, uh, my husband has three rules of engagement when we go to church. Number one, an alone person in our gathering is an emergency. Mm. Number two, friends can wait. Number three, introduce a newcomer to someone else. And then she says, let's all be missionaries at church today. Mm. What do you think? Fascinating because I, I've uh, never not ever, ever since college I've only worked in churches right right, right. and so this is a little Same. different because what she's saying I I internalize as a pastor all the time right if I see somebody sitting by themselves I am making a beeline to them uh, int- I love to introduce and make connections with people like hey come meet right. this person but the flip side of that is people expect that of us as pastors 
right? Like, yeah, well, right. you're the pastor. You're supposed to go up to the new guy. Like, sometimes you it got feels, the mic on. I can exactly, say, right. exactly. Yep. Sometimes it feels weird to walk up to people with that microphone on and be like, oh, and they're like, oh, oh I, you're the pastor. I struggle to do it, man. Yeah. I do it, but it's hard. Yeah, and so the fact that uh, I think that these are a great list if you're a pastor. Like, these are a wonderful list of uh, how you should view your gathering. Uh, but this being just regular people going to church, I think this is what begins to transform the community of yep, the church. I totally agree. When, when uh, Joe and Jane Congregant, if you will, uh-huh. <laughs> are are going up to people. Uh, number two, quite frankly, is the most powerful one. Friends can wait. Because this might be the only time you see people, or one of the only times you see them in a week. Right. Uh, and, and that they take this posture that says, you know what? We we want to hang out with our friends. We want to talk to them. But, right, of course. But if we see somebody alone, we're either going to kind of leave our friends and go talk to them, or we're going to introduce them to our friends and make those connections. Uh-huh. And then the overarching um, umbrella statement here that she makes about her and her husband is, let's be missionaries at church. Yeah. Is that we often think about being missionaries, rightfully so, outside of church. Right. But she's saying, you know what, we treat the Sunday morning gathering as an opportunity uh, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to to treat it like a mission field, I think is really helpful and fascinating. Well, and it is really an opportunity. That's the thing that I think is so easy yeah. to miss because no one's going to church. I don't think, maybe I shouldn't say no one. Few people are going to church intentionally trying to exclude people. It's not a proactive, like, I don't want to see anyone I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't want to interact with any strangers. Maybe some people, to some degree, you know, if you're more introverted, feel that way at some level. What I like about this list is it's not about like condemning, you know, hanging out with your friends. It's about being intentional. Yeah. And one of the things that I find perpetually encouraging, especially, you know, as a pastor in church work, is that most of what happens, like on a stage, you or I have some say over. Right. We can plan the songs. Right. We can plan the volume, the sermon, the length, the topic, the vibe, the atmosphere. That's like a little bit of a controlled environment. What you can't, what you can't um, manufacture is whether or not someone feels loved when they arrive. That's right. That's that's a culture comment. That's right. When someone says, "Man, well before I even made it to your auditorium," and statistics will show us that something like ninety-eight percent of people will choose, they'll decide whether or not to return to your church within the first 90 seconds. That's wild. From the first 90 seconds, they're yep. parking their car, by the way. Not first 90 seconds of the of the message or the or the service. Wow. Which means the vast majority of people are making that decision well before they ever hear your cool intro. Yep, yep. How good your band is. It's about, man, they seem genuine. They were greeting me. There was, uh, I mean, because we all know you can have greeters that are not greeting. Yep. Like, you can have a first impressions team that maybe is not giving a great first impression. Yep, yep. And what she's saying is don't let it exist simply on their shoulders. Yes. Let's be a people that are collectively together yes. having eyes and radars right. to notice someone that can maybe use a friend. It's the difference of having teams and structure, which are important, R- and having totally. a culture. Totally. A culture that says we want to love on people. I'm curious for yourself. I think uh, you're at you're at a really big church, and I think the really big stereotype painting with a broad brush, right, is that People go to big churches because they want to be anonymous or they right. want this or that, which I'm guessing you would say you have found to be the opposite or uh-huh. completely different. I'm curious how in big churches where you're dealing with lots of people, how do you how do you guys even begin having this conversation about setting a culture like this? Well, setting, I mean, I, I think. Um, or how do you just have this conversation? Yeah, and it happens at multiple levels. That's, that's how I would answer it. I think it has to happen at multiple levels. I mean, first, our 
first impressions team is amazing. Yeah. And they're they're just some of the best people. They're genuine. You know, not only do they like do their job well, but when you interact with them, you're like, oh, this isn't an act for you. You know how like the person yeah. at the amusement park that's giving the spiel before the roller coaster takes off and they give it a thousand times over and they're like, you, you, it's clear that yes. they don't want to be there, yep. you know. Uh, they just are some of the most lovely kind. They they're willing to laugh. They're willing to help. They're willing to engage people. So that that is sort of the groundwork. But we we teach it from the stage. We yep. teach it at staff meeting once a month. We have what's called leadership community where we're pouring into all of our volunteers and leaders. Mm. So it's like this slow. Uh, it's the drip of culture. So rather than just an avalanche of like, oh, it's obvious to us that our culture is broken and we need to make a fast course correction. Yep, yep. We play the long game and we're mm. always sort of dropping little little bits of vision about, hey, th- this is what it means to be on mission together. Yeah. It's not just about hopping on a plane. It's not just about these big events, these conferences. It's like, how do we help the single person yep. who's showing up here for the first time um, and, 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 and has no idea what's going on? Yeah. And there's some, you know, there's some easy tells. Like they're looking up you know, at the ceiling or they're trying to find the bathroom. Like sometimes it's really... Mm. Easy to identify someone who's like, oh, you're new here. I can put my wants and needs and desires yeah. on the back burner to care for you. In fact, in fact, at my last church, we uh, I created this um, this cell phone wallpaper, and I turned it into a magnet, which is super cool. Um, <laughs> but it was just three numbers, three six nine, uh, three, and the three six nine was sort of a challenge to all of our church in how to approach Sunday morning. So the three was, what if you showed up three minutes before the start of service, mm. rather than. 15 minutes into it with your Starbucks and your, and that yep. wasn't like a slam. It was yep. like, Hey, if you just showed up a little bit earlier, maybe we'd be more prepared to actually see yep. people the way that God does. Um, the six was, what if you stayed, what if you committed the first six minutes after the service to connect with new people, mm. not your friends, not your family, six minutes, just connect. Yep. And then the nine was, what if you actually knew the names of the nine chairs around you? Just look at the, look at the nine closest people to you and just committed to learning their names. And so the three, six, nine challenge was sort of like, what if we just treated every Sunday like that? I wonder if that would change the culture of our church, and it totally did. I like it. I think I'm going to steal that. Please do, man. (laughs) (laughs) It was really helpful for us. That's really good, because I think here's what's truth. At a church your size versus a church my size, uh, new people at my church are a lot more obvious because there's less people there, right? You think it's obvious to everyone? Yes. Really? Yes. Church your size, it's a lot less obvious. Yeah, right. The commonality is the new person at your church and the new person at my church is looking for the same thing. Uh, they want right. to be known. They want to totally. be everyone. I'm now a believer that totally. there's people going to your church because they're like, well, I get to hide in the back and nobody's right. going to talk to me. Right. Uh, and so uh, I think the the commonality is at all these places is that people want to be known and they want to know other people. Yeah. And uh, we've got to figure out great, you know, it, like like what you did at your old church, we've got to figure out ways to make that happen. Well, and, and it's, and again, you know, like you said, it is different when you're the pastor and you have the microphone right. on the headset. So even like a brand new person, like, ah, you're going to be on stage at some point, which I think some people will appreciate. Yep. And I do really have, it is sometimes hard just to walk up to people and shake hands and get to know their story. But I actually, I really love it. Um, but we yeah. encourage our band, you know, to be in the lobby following the service mm. to like meet and connect with people. Like just even being available, uh, I think is so important because sometimes people are like, Hey, I don't want the hard sell. Don't approach me. Yes. But like we have a prayer team that's up front of the stage every Sunday. In fact, they walk through the auditorium uh, beforehand and they pray over every chair. That's cool. So you often say, you know, like it's a bigger church, but we're really, really intentional yep. about it. Like, yep. yeah, it is about movements and it's about helping people find their way back together, but it starts with a person. And the other thing that I will say 
and this may seem unrelated to some people, but we are really intentional about celebrating the singular stories. That's awesome. There's a lot of like emails sent to our all staff account where we will together celebrate this one individual story to remember that it, yeah, we talk in big broad strokes a lot of times, mm. but we want to be really intentional about never forgetting that it's about people, people helping people find their way back to God, which I think is important to keep That's out great. front. All right. Well, coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we always do with little interweb insanity stories. We have not seen sound effects. We have not heard. And it is the, well, it's the way that we end the show every day, whether yeah, every we should day. or shouldn't. And uh, that's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And that music can mean only one thing. Some of you are turning off your radios. That's, <laughs> but if you're just joining us or you're new to the show... We spend just the last few minutes because regardless of what we talked about, there probably was some heavy stuff, some light stuff, some weird stuff. We try to end just with some interweb insanity, and the internet never disappoints. They are stories that our producers have found. We have not seen them. We have not read them. We also don't know the sound effects that will be accompanying them. So it's all a surprise to us. So if we're giggling, it's because we're reading them for the first time. If we're horrified, we're horrified right along with you. And I'm going to let Brian Fromm kick us off. New Jersey, my home state, says this man accidentally grows world record corn stalk. Uh, Matt Giacovelli, age 80, loves feeding animals in his Deptford Township, New Jersey backyard. Every day he spreads kernels of corn and watches from his porch as critters feast. Given all the kernels, he's pretty used to pulling weeds, but one kept growing and it was something of a mystery. I'm not a farmer, he said. It's just this freak accident here is giving us a lot of attention. What he thinks happened is a squirrel took one of the kernels from his yard and buried it in his garden. We joked around and said, okay, let's let it grow. After a while, he started to notice something unusual. There were several cobs growing from the same stalk. We started counting them, and I think we got to 20. I said, this is unbelievable. We may have this record. <laughs> to be exact, there are 29 cobs of corn on the single stalk. Ah, wow. It's now the Guinness World Record. I don't know whether to congratulate you or not. I wouldn't. <laughs> this is a normal corn stalk has one ear. Do you know that? No, I did not. That's crazy. This one, 29. Wow, I'm going to go see it now. All right, England. Two skydivers in near miss with fighter jets traveling oh. at 350 miles an hour. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> Two skydivers. John thinks John's it's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> Two skydivers nearly collided in midair with a pair of fighter jets traveling at almost 350 miles an hour over the UK. A report has revealed the parachutists. Yes. I didn't know that was a word. Were free falling. Tom Petty style Go do it. at speeds of 120 miles per that hour. Might be coming right now. It might be. That's true. Over Shatiris Airfield in Cambridge, when the U.S. warplanes passed underneath them. Holy no cow! Way. Details of the incident in April have been revealed in a report by the UK Airport Air Airprox Airprox Board, which classified in its second highest danger category. The air safety assessors said they had seen footage recorded on the helmet cam of one of the skydivers and could clearly see the F-15 jets passing beneath. Okay, I'm uh, I'm gonna need a change of clothes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we get our first Florida. Wait a minute, hold on. What are your What are your articles doing face up right now? Well, those ones we've already done. You're reading them before we even got there. No, I'm not on at all. Brian, I just Trump, turned it we, over. We told them that we don't read them I ahead of time. I just turned it over. Read the New Jersey one beforehand. I did not. Ah, that's I right, John. That's right. Thanks for holding is, us accountable, John. This is hashtag fake news coming from Ian Simpkins over it's here. It's not true. He was reading New Jersey before we started. I saw it. Florida police break up frozen biscuit brouhaha. 
A woman accused of hitting a man in the head with a bag of frozen biscuits got in a jam uh, with Fort Pierce police. The 25-year-old woman was arrested August 29th on a battery charge after the alleged carbohydrate caper. The man identified as the victim told investigators he was struck uh, in the head with frozen biscuits. He said the woman got upset and came outside where he was sitting. The alleged biscuit beatdown happened as the woman swung the bag of frozen biscuits and struck him in the forehead. Yikes. A biscuit is a type of soft bread, often <laughs> with baking powder or soda. This article describing to us what a biscuit is. <laughs> Myriad recipes exist for sweet and savory varieties. Oh, my God. I'm going to stop right there. Yeah, she said the victim's the wife kicked her in the side, but investigators saw no signs of injuries. Mm-hmm. Like, clearly just looking for words at this point. Yeah, that was really interesting how it hey, turned on us there. Why don't you just add some recipes for biscuits <laughs> in the store? All right, California, man may close store after being bitten by a homeless person twice in four months. Oh, boy. A San Francisco business owner says a homeless man has bitten him twice on the same guy in the last four months, and he's had enough. The victim owns the Harvest Urban Market in city's Soma neighborhood. He says homelessness and drug problems are fueling the violence. Police arrested 29-year-old Adam Ashabrak. For the biting attacks, he was charged with aggravated assault and battery. The business owner says he often finds homeless people selling and doing drugs inside his restrooms. Oh, oh gosh. You didn't just do that. Uh, <laughs> if I mention that we didn't choose these articles, I feel like I just need to say it every 30 seconds yep, sometimes. Yep. Sweden, last one from Sweden. Bomb Squad called the Swedish preschool. Uh, after child brings in live grenade. Oh, boy. Did we again parenthetically mention we do not choose yeah, these Yeah, gosh. I'm just going to say it every 10 seconds Officers now. from Sweden's National Bomb Squad put a preschool in lockdown on Tuesday after a child brought in live ammunition into the class. Uh, staff at the kindergarten in the southern Swedish town of Kristianstad called the police after discovering the suspicious item in the evening after the children left for the day. Once on the scene, police realized it was a grenade and decided to call in the bomb squad. Detonation experts assessed the device, which a police spokesman described to CNN as a like a rifle round but bigger, and deemed it too dangerous to move. It was then dismantled in a controlled environment at the kindergarten. The spokesman told CNN that the child had found the ammunition in a field used by the military uh, for training exercises. Police did not identify the child, saying only that they were aged under seven the starting age for school in Sweden. That's pretty good. Oh my gosh. I feel like we're, we're ending on a real not a real down Monday. Real low note here, man. Wow. Let's, my name is Ian Simkins along with Brian Fromm here on the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like.